All right. Today, kind of going on our themes of missions as we were talking earlier, we have a special guest speaker. Uh, he's been here before. He's been um, out to the South Sudan region, uh, war-torn region currently, and his, his passion is for the areas that have been unreached by any missionaries. And currently he's back here in the States while the wars are going on, but he successfully planted many pastors, a team of doctors and pastors out in that area to reach the unreached. And um, he's going to share with us about this mission that God placed in his heart and how we can be a part of that. So without any further ado, we have Pastor Rob Douglas. Good morning. Are you guys ready? All right. This morning, we've entitled the message, A Heart for the Harvest. God has half of the world today that still is waiting to hear, and he's chosen us. He has desired and called us to spread his gospel throughout the entire world. So today, we're going to break the message up into two parts. The first part is how God is going to use us right here at home, crossing the street, finding people that have never truly been engaged by the gospel, those that don't understand the love of Christ. They might be in your own family. They might be in your neighborhood. Maybe they're at your school or at your workplace. And then the second half of the message, we're going to take a journey to some of the most remote parts of the planet and find out what is still left to be done in finishing the Great Commission. God is going to give us his heart this morning a heart to harvest souls for eternity. Let's open with a word of prayer. Lord, as we enter into these next few moments, as we sit in your presence, as you have so touched us through this time of worship, God, we ask that your spirit will fall. We ask that your word will open. We ask that your heart will be infused into our heart. Jesus, we want to be like you. We want to go to those that are dying, those that have needs, those that truly need to understand who you are and how you've come to set them free from their sins. Jesus, meet us this morning. Send us out from this place with a passion to live for eternity. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. A heart for the harvest. Well, the best scripture to look at is in John chapter 4. So we're going to look at one simple verse this morning. John chapter 4, we know the story. It's the woman at the well. We remember that Jesus and his disciples were traveling from Jerusalem, and they were going to be walking up to the Galilee. Now, in this part of Israel, there's an area right in the middle of Israel called Samaria. Now, the Samaritans were what we would call today unwanted people in the light or in the eyes of the Jewish people. The Jewish people would look at the Samaritans and say, they had the truth. They had the Old Testament, but they chose to reject a lot of it. The Samaritan people were right on the border of the Jewish nation, and they understood the entire Old Testament, but they rejected everything except for the laws of Moses and the writings of Moses. And so the Jews 
looked at the Samaritans and said, we don't like you. You're not like us. You don't believe the same things we believe. We don't want to fellowship with you. We don't want to even enter into your territory. We believe that if we interact with you, we will become unclean. So now as we're looking at this story this morning, let's put in perspective our own lives. Do we do the same thing as the Jews did in Jesus' day? Are there people in our community where we say, I don't want to get anywhere near them. I would rather just avoid them. I don't like the way that they think. I don't like the foods they eat. I don't like the way that they talk. I don't like the, what their passion is. And so you know what? It's a lot easier to simply gather together with those that agree with me and that I find fellowship with. And as Christians, we isolate ourselves so much so that there are unengaged people all around us. We pass them by. We actually drive out of our way so that we don't have to talk to them. Do you have one of those neighbors where you say, Lord, could you just please move that neighbor on? Do you guys have no neighbors like that? We all do. In my own neighborhood, I'm not praying that the Lord moves these people on in this new example, but in my neighborhood, I've got people from India. I've got people from Iran. I've got people from Palestine. I've got people from Asian countries that are unreached. Why? Because the world is coming to us. God has a plan for us. So back to our story in John chapter 4. Jesus says to his disciples, we're going to go to the Galilee, but we're not going to take the long road around Samaria so that we don't have to become unclean in their community. We're going to cut right through the center of Samaria and we're going to reach those people. And the disciples, you guys know how the disciples were, a lot like us, completely unaware of what God's true plan is for their lives. The disciples are like, Jesus, why would you even want to talk to those Samaritans? Can't we just do the normal Jewish thing and literally spend another day walking? Remember, they didn't have cars. They didn't jump on a bus. There was no paved roads. They walked. Let's spend another day walking so that we don't have to interact with those half-breeds, those unwanted Samaritans. And Jesus says, no, I've come to harvest souls, to reach people, to love people. Now, when I bring up the concept of evangelism, what's the first thing that happens in your heart? Fear. Is it true? Just like the disciples. We don't want to go anywhere outside of what we're used to. Fear. It's totally normal for God to move on your heart, for you to step, encouraging you to step out of your comfort zone, and for you just to literally grip in fear, to like freeze up in fear. It's normal. We all do it. So Jesus said, I'm going to lead my disciples into what true ministry looks like. So they go to this area called Samaria. It's the middle of the day. They've been walking for many hours through the desert. It'd be like walking through, you know, the Mojave Desert in the middle of the day with, with no air conditioning, no water. You're just walking. And so Jesus stops because he's tired from the journey and he sits next to a well. The disciples leave the master there sitting by the well and they go into the town to buy food to bring it back out to the master thinking that the master doesn't even want to enter into the town and be defiled by those people. But Jesus the whole time knows that there's a woman in Samaria and she's not just an outcast Samaritan in the eyes of the Jews. She's an outcast amongst her own people. 
You see, in that part of the world, when you see a woman in the middle of the day carrying water by herself to the well to, to fill up her jug and then back from the well with a full jug, when she's by herself, it culturally speaks very clearly that she's been rejected. You see, I lived in cultures like this, in cultures in Africa, where we still go down to the well every day and carry water. No one goes to the well by themselves. They go as a group. So here Jesus is sitting. His disciples go off to get food. And this woman comes all by herself to the well. And Jesus knew she was on her way. Don't think that this was just an accident. This was the plan of God. So as Jesus is sitting there, the undesirable Samaritan that's been rejected by her own people is now interacting with the Savior of the world in human flesh. And as he begins dialoguing with her in this wonderful cultural communication, this wonderful cultural conversation, he starts to reveal to her who he truly is. And she knows very clearly that God has been promising to send a Savior. She knows very clearly that she's a sinner. You remember this story? She had many husbands, and now she's living with a guy that's not even her husband. So she has this weight and this guilt of sin on her shoulders. And she knows God is sending a Savior. And what is she doing? She's longing to find freedom. She's looking, looking for forgiveness. Has no idea that the one sitting in front of her that she's talking to is that promised Savior. So as Jesus begins to reveal who he is to her, she gets so excited. She says, you are the Messiah. We were speaking of the names of God during worship. What does Messiah mean? It's a Hebrew word in English, Savior. You are the promised Savior. You're the one that we've been waiting for. And so as this woman runs back into the village to find all of her, uh, you know, in a sense, other Samaritans, all of her, her common people, she wants to get them and bring them out to Jesus and say, you need to meet the Messiah. He's sitting at the edge of our village. As she's running off to get the people from the town, the disciples come up to Jesus and they say to him, master, have you eaten and Jesus looks at them and says, there'll be a time to eat in the future. Right now, we're not worried about that. Now, I can relate with the disciples. What do I think about normally? Souls or my stomach? Honestly, what do I think about? Somebody's eternal destination or my comforts at the moment? You see, that's all the disciples were thinking about. They're sitting with the Son of God, and all they want to talk about is food. So Jesus says to them, in this verse, this is John chapter 4, verse 35. Jesus says to them, my food, I'm starting in verse 34, is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Verse 35, do not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are already white for harvest. What is he telling the disciples to do? He's telling them, notice right in front of you that I ministered to this woman. The woman went into the town. She's gathered up, we don't know how many, but we can imagine 50, 100 people. She's gathered up this mob of people and they're coming out to meet us. Disciples, we will eat at some time, but right now, my will is to do the my food is to do the will of my father. 
And he says to them, lift up your eyes and look at the fields. You see, all of these men understood what it meant to grow, or sorry, I should say to plant, to water, to wait, to weed, and then at this right time, to harvest. When you have wheat and you're harvesting wheat or you're harvesting grain, when the kernel becomes white and you see it white, you know it must be harvested immediately. And if you wait any longer, you're going to lose the harvest. So Jesus is saying, don't lose this moment. Right now, God has opened up the heart of one woman. She is inviting many to come to us. The purpose of our existence at the moment, at this time in history, is to minister to the people that we thought we should avoid. Now let's think of that in our own life. Has God brought people into our lives but because they weren't like us, because we didn't enjoy them, because we don't agree with them, do we simply look right past them? And do we spend more time fellowshipping with other believers than we do simply sharing the love of Jesus with those that are unengaged around us? You see, here's the greatest thing about Jesus. Jesus has lived out exactly what he's calling us to do. He's never asked us to do something that he hasn't already done. When he says, do this, all we have to do, even 2,000 years later, is find him doing it before us. And then he says, I'm going to fill you with my Holy Spirit. And when my Holy Spirit fills your heart, you're going to have the ability to do it. You see, when I first hear about evangelism or I'm convicted about sharing my faith or I'm encouraged by another to share my faith... What happens? In my life, in my heart, I become, in a sense, nervous. And I say, Lord, I don't have the right words, and I'm not prepared, and I don't know what to do with all of these different things that are going on in this conversation. And the Lord says, I don't want your ability. I don't want you to be a genius. You don't need to know how to answer every argument. You don't need any of that stuff. What I want from you is your availability. And so this is where the Lord has us today. He wants us as a disciples to lift up our eyes and to look at the fields that are all around us in our own neighborhoods, at our workplace, in our homes. He wants us to look at the fields and say, they are ready for harvest now. The time is here. Now let me encourage you with a ministry that I have become acquainted with in the past few years. My friend, Rob Myers, we share the same name. He's Rob the plumber, I'm Rob the electrician. That's how you guys can remember. So Rob the electrician moves to South Sudan and ministers with unreached people. While Rob the electrician is home in America, he meets with Rob the plumber. And I said, Rob the plumber, what has God called you to do? Because we met at a missions meeting pretty much like this Sunday morning. And he said, well, about two or three years ago, my wife had to stop um, being a homeschool mom only, and she had to get a job because my plumbing business was suffering, the economy was getting low, and so we knew we needed two incomes to support our family, and our kids were in high school, and they had been homeschooled their whole lives, and so in a sense, they're self-studying, and so we knew that we needed the second income, so my wife went down to the San Bernardino school system and got a job doing drug prevention awareness. But now this is what you need to know about Colleen, Rob's wife. 
She's never done drugs. She's been a Christian girl her entire life. Her whole family's born again. Everybody loves God. She spends all of her time at this beautiful church up in Lake Arrowhead, which we know is this pristine little community. And loving God and being, being a believer, she has no idea about drugs and drug awareness. But she just goes, okay, Lord, if you're opening this door, I want to walk through the doors that you put before me. So she says to the people in San Bernardino school system, and you guys all know, San Bernardino is a rough neighborhood. A lot of stuff goes on there. She says to the people, well, what do I do when I try to do drug awareness? What kind of drugs are going on? And what are the kids involved in? What's happening in San Bernardino? And they said, well, we're going to take you to a rave this weekend. Have you guys heard of raves? Okay. So here's homeschool mom never, ever, ever considered rebellion in the slightest bit sitting out in front of a rave. She knows that this old broken down amusement park that's been rented for the weekend to throw this massive party, she knows that inside of that place is nothing but total broken immorality. And she's looking at, and she, she tells the story. She says, I'm sitting there in my car and I just began weeping. And I look at this line of kids that, that, are, that are standing outside. Can you guys not see this? Did I lose signal? Okay, well, I'm gonna go back, so maybe we can get that back sometime. All right, I'll work it out. I'll just tell you the story. I got great pictures to show you with it. She looks at this line of kids. She says it's like 10 kids wide and over a mile long. This is in the late evening. Girls are wearing almost nothing. They're starting to take drugs as they stand in line. And as they're beginning to walk out and, and, and walk into this rave ministry, Colleen is watching these young girls start to lose the ability to know where they are and what's about to happen to them. And then she sees men begin to surround these girls. And so she immediately says, something has to be done. Something has to be done. She goes home that night and she wakes her husband up. Now it's like one in the morning. She wakes him up and says, Rob, we gotta do something. And Rob's looking at her like, what are you talking about? Where did you even go? You were just out like learning about something. Where did you go? And she starts to tell her husband what she's been seeing. And so they began to pray. And so the plumber and the homeschool mom said, this is an issue in our community and we are gonna do something about it. We don't understand how it works. We're not part of that community. I think I, I found our problem with our, with our visual. I just realized it. Sorry. Here we go. One more time. Okay. Here, now we're back. We are going to do something about this. We are going to make a difference. And so Rob and Colleen started the ministry, and they named the ministry PLUR. PLUR is the acronym that the RAVE kids use, and it stands for peace, love, unity, and respect. And they said, you're coming here taking drugs, and you're coming here looking for life, and the only way to find that is in Jesus. And so they're taking that subculture, and they're engaging that subculture directly by being a part of that world, in a sense, on the outside, saying Jesus is real, Jesus is here, and Jesus loves you. And they uh, titled their newsletter Engage because they realized there was this massive group of people in our own community, our own family members, that are being drawn away into total brokenness and the church was nowhere to be seen. The first thing that hit Colleen, the homeschool mom, was is that there were no pastors. There was no youth groups. There was nobody making a point 
to reach these people. And so when she went into these areas, she said, I am not going to walk past them. I'm going to stop and I'm going to engage with them. They are lost and I'm not going to reject them because they're lost. I'm going to go to them and I'm going to be a part of their world. Now, when you walk into some of these now very large rave outreaches or these very large rave, rave, rave events, over the top of the gate, it says, keep it wicked. Keep it wicked? What are you talking about? And then when you enter into one, and this one with the beautiful stained glass background, it's one of the largest one, 100,000 people go to this rave every year in Las Vegas. And when you look closely at it, they've mimicked an old church. Stained glass windows, pipe organs, and the DJ gets up and in a sense, takes the place of the pastor in the community. And he begins to tell these kids, you don't need church. You don't need God. What do you need? You need your drugs, your ecstasy, or whatever you're taking, and you need the music. Today, right now, they're beginning to perform weddings during these raves. These kids need life. They're looking for love. They're looking for God. And what are they finding? Total complete brokenness. The devil disguises himself as an angel of light. An entire generation of our people are being lost in this. In the midst of all of this and, and, and all of the emotion and all of the stuff, in the midst of this, the DJ gets up and he says, the beat has saved my life. What is he telling them? If you feel good right now, that's all that matters. Not what's going to happen to you in the next few hours as you're a young lady and you're so, you know, out of your mind on drugs and you're gang raped. They don't tell them that. Not that when you wake up tomorrow morning and you maybe remember what you did this night, the shame that will break your heart. Not after a year of living this way, the emptiness that you feel that you can't break free from. They don't tell you any of that. They just say, do you feel good now? That's all that you need. The beat has saved your life. They do not know. And I can remember being just as deceived as one of these young adults in this. And then they go so far as to say, in trance we trust. Not in God, in the feeling, in the music, in the emotion, in the trance of the moment is what we trust in. My friend Rob was at one of these raves and the DJ says to the entire audience, 10,000 people plus. He says, I want you to get all on your knees. And everybody goes down on their knees. It's like this huge group. The, the beat starts to lower. It's still on, so you can still feel the motion. But it's lower down. He begins to speak. And he says, I want you all to get on your knees and to raise your hands. And so they did. They literally did. 10,000 kids raised their hands. And they said, I want you to repeat after me. I am not a sinner. I am not a sinner. I am not a sinner. And they chanted and chanted and chanted. The music comes up. The kids come off of their feet and they're sitting there saying, I have no need for a savior. I don't need God. I need those things that my parents have told me about. Who cares about what happened at my church or those Christians in my community that talked to me about God? I don't need any of that because I'm not guilty. But here's the best part about it. This is what I'm here to share with you this morning. Jesus said that when we confess that he is the rock, he is the one, he is the Messiah, that's what Peter said. 
Jesus said, with that confession, my church will be built on that rock and the gates of hell will never be able to stop my church from destroying their destruction. We, as Christians, have been called, and not just called, but given the opportunity, the privilege to rush into these areas with the gospel and to change them forever. So right now, there's a ministry, and you can meet some of them. They'll be here today outside of the table. There's a ministry, and when they go into these raves, the dads stay outside in the parking lot, and they warm up the RV, because remember, this is an all-night party. They put on the hot soup or the chili or whatever. They get the blankets ready, and they're praying. And the moms go into these complete immorality fest. The moms go in, and they just start rescuing kids, rescuing kids, rescuing kids. Homeschool mom Colleen says, Rob, I can't tell you how many stories how many times I've been in a rave and I've seen a girl start to like, you know, lose her ability to know where she is because of the drugs and to see guys just surround her. What does Colleen do? The homeschool mom, not the cool tattooed sleeved, you know, woman, the normal mom that everybody wants just to love them. She walks right in and says, you're not touching her. She's mine. And he rescues those girls one at a time. And before you know it, around the RV are all these kids meeting Jesus for the first time. They'll be outside today. You would love, love to be involved with that ministry. Now, let me switch gears on you from just local ministry. And let's ask the question, why do we do international ministry? Why do we leave America? Because you know, there are problems here and there's things that need to be done here. And yes, absolutely. We need to minister to those that God has put in front of us. But what we can't do is have our eyes down so low that we only see those that are right here. We need to lift up our eyes and look beyond our community and say, what about the rest of the world? At this moment today, around the world, half of the population is still waiting to hear the gospel for the first time. Half of the people alive today are still waiting to hear the gospel for the first time. So you see on this map, the green countries are countries where the gospel has gone forth, the church is growing, and it's evangelizing within the community. Some are stronger, some are weaker, but just like a traffic light, green means it's moving forward, there is progress. While the yellow countries are places on the earth where the gospel has gone forth, and they have huge cathedrals, and they had the gospel at one time in the hearts of the people, but over time, because of God's blessing, because of wealth, because of safety, they've rejected God and oftentimes become atheistic. So the yellow countries is where the gospel used to be growing, and now it's slowing down, just like that traffic light. Then there are the red countries. The red countries are home to half the world's population, where the majority of them have never once met a Christian. They've never once opened a Bible. They've never once seen a church or been able to access the gospel in any way whatsoever. Now, when you look at this part of the world, we've put a, a name on it. It's called the 1040 window. The 1040 window is an area that's 10 degrees north of the equator to 40 degrees north of the equator, spreading all across North Africa, the Middle East, and into Asia. In that 1040 window is home to the most unreached places on the planet. Now, do me a favor. 
as you think about these numbers, just imagine being born in one of these countries. In North Africa and the Middle East is home to 1.6 billion Muslims. 1.6 billion people that have a very strong religion. But is that religion going to lead them into eternity with God? No. Are they good people? Most of them, yes. Of course, there's terrorism. I've lived and worked in most of these countries. They're good people, but they don't know the truth. A billion of them. Then, moving on to parts of Asia where there's Buddhism or former Buddhism because communism crushed a lot of religion, 0.6 billion Buddhists, 600 million people following the philosophies of a man named Siddhartha that then was called the Buddha. He's, he's not God. He's not the starter of a religion. He's simply a man that says, this is the way I think you should live. And everybody said, that's a good way. We'll call him the Buddha, the enlightened one, and let's follow him. I lived in a Buddhist country for two years. Great people. And they're following a human philosophy that's going to lead them into eternity. And they're never going to find forgiveness without the message of the gospel. And then there's areas like where your pastor is today. Pastor Richard and Ben and many of your other pastors and even uh, Tyler from the other church and other people from there. They're all in India. Why? Because India has 800 million people worshiping demons. 800 million people trapped. Trapped. I've spent tons of time in these countries and these people are crying out to find the truth. They're searching for God in temples. And what are they finding? They're finding demons. There's no other way to describe it. Are they good people? Yes. Are they hospitable people? Absolutely. Would I prefer to live in India? Yes. Would I want to eat Indian food every day? Yes. Do I love Indians? Absolutely. But would I want to follow them religiously? Never. I love them. I respect them. But God has called me to share with them that their concepts of religion are, and I'll just use this very gently, they're damning. They're not going to set them free. What's this mean? This means that right now today, three billion people on the planet are unreached. They don't have access to the gospel. They will not have access to the gospel unless Christians go into their world and become a part of their community. Now, let me bring this number home to you a little bit. Put your hand on your heart or maybe um, on your neck. Find your pulse. Right now today, within these three billion people, the average death is 120,000 people in a 24-hour period. Your heart beats 120,000 times in a 24-hour period. That means that for every heartbeat, somebody is slipping into eternity that has never heard the gospel. This is urgent. This isn't something that we can just say, oh, I heard a good message and it was kind of stirring. No, this is what we live for. Jesus didn't come to the earth just to save the Jews, this little bitty country in the middle of you know, the world. He came to save the entire planet. When Jesus called the disciples, he said, start in Jerusalem, then go to Judea, which is your surrounding communities, then go to Samaria, which is those unengaged people that you don't want to be a part of, but don't stop until what? Until we reach the ends of the earth. Why do we do international missions? 
Why does our pastor go off to India? Why do we need to even be concerned? Because God has given us the gospel and now the privilege to take that message to the very ends of the earth. Now, let me put some faces on these statistics. I've got a five-minute video about the unreached. And as I play this, I want you to consider in your heart, Lord, if I was born there, how much chance, how many chances or how much hope would I have in hearing the gospel? Look into their eyes and ask the Lord what part he wants you to play. The job is not done in the world that Christ gave us to do and the mandate is still binding on us today. That's why we speak of unreached people groups. But the missions is the back-breaking, culture-penetrating, darkness-shattering initial work to penetrate, plant the church, see it flourish, get its own elders, train its own people, evangelize its own networks. That's the task of missions. It's not over. And that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. And the alternative is hell. And millions and millions and millions of people are on their way there. And we have the only means of escape in our heads and in our hearts. Jesus Christ. There are many prodigal sons on our city streets they run searching for shelter and there are homes broken down people's hopes have fallen to the ground from failures this is an emergency This is 
something like that and you say, Lord, what part do I play? Do I really need to do something? And then we come back to these scriptures that we know. We've known them from childhood. If you grew up in the church, if you joined the church as an adult, you probably learned it as one of your first memory verses. If you've ever been to church camp, what do we learn? We learn that Jesus Christ is the only way. John chapter 14, verse six, Jesus says to his disciples, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. And then you compare what you know to what they don't know. And then you ask yourself, where would I be today if someone didn't enter into my community and bring the gospel to my ancestors. Where would I be today? I come from Europe, my ancestors. What if missionaries didn't give everything, even their lives, to bring the gospel to Scandinavia, to England, to, to, to all of Europe? You see, at one point in time, all of our ancestors were unreached. And now we look and we say, the job's not done. And when we really consider it, how many more days do we have on this earth? And what are we going to do during this time that God's given us? You see, missions is our priority because breath is in our lungs and we're prepared for eternity. We're ready for heaven. We sit in this building every Sunday and we sing songs and we prepare our hearts to be with Jesus forever. And then when we leave the building, we say, what can I do to make myself more comfortable? And we go on about our lives. I do the same thing. I'm no different than you. The Lord had to wake me up to the reality of the unreached by showing me the people, showing me the videos, letting me hear messages just like this to say, if I'm ready for heaven and they're not, if I die in a day and I open my eyes in eternity with Jesus forever, and if they die that same day and they enter into hell without him, what would be a greater priority? Nothing, nothing. This is why God has us here on the earth. Of course, we're gonna love our families and take care of our church, but it is missions that God desires. Now we ask ourselves, can they be saved without hearing the gospel? It's a hundred verses we could use. This one we read even in the beginning of service. Romans chapter 10, verse 14. Let me read this to you. Can they be saved without hearing the gospel? The answer is no. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So here's Paul the apostle, the greatest missionary ever, the man that wrote the best parts of the Bible that we just love to understand. When did he write those things? Where was he when he wrote those things? In the midst of the mission field, giving his life for people that had never heard. It was men like Paul 
that said, I'm not just going to sit in Jerusalem and have a nicer home and a nicer community and have my family all around me with beautiful safety. Men like Paul says, I'm going to give everything because I'm ready to enter eternity with the Lord. And they've never heard. And so Paul says, we must go. They must hear. And to be saved, they must believe. Now let me give you an analogy of what it's like to be an unreached person. There's a story of 33 men that were trapped in a mine in Chile. These were miners. They were copper miners. These 33 men were deep in this mine. Now, now notice how deep they were. They were 2,300 feet below the surface, deep in this corkscrew-type uh, mine shaft. That's further down than the height of the Empire State Building. When their mine shaft collapsed and a massive stone bigger than this room blocked their ability to get out. They didn't have a drilling rig. They didn't have a way to break through. They were completely and totally trapped. When their family members heard that their loved ones were trapped that far below the ground, they knew they couldn't do anything on their own. So what did they do in the beginning? They got together in masses and they prayed. This is exactly what the church does when they see the unreached. It's too intense. It's too far away. We can't do it, but you know what? We're going to start in prayer. And as these family members started holding these prayer vigils by the hundreds, the world woke up to the reality that these 33 men were running out of time. They were running out of food. They were running out of oxygen. They were running out of water. They were about to expire forever. And their family members were saying, we're just going to pray. As the world woke up, as we begin to pray, then the world said, we are going to send money into that area. This was a, mine, a mining company in Chile. We're going to send money to Chile to do whatever they can to help those people. As we begin to pray, God begins to stir hearts. And the church gets involved, everybody in some way. And the community at large gets involved. And we start to see things happen. And then number three, a group of drilling companies got together and said, we can get those people out. Now remember, the days are clicking by. This all doesn't just happen in a few hours. This happens in a matter of weeks. These men are trapped. So the first drilling company shows up and says, we are going to plant our roots here and we are going to drill down and we're going to get those people out. That drilling rig broke when it got about halfway down. It broke and it couldn't be used again. And another group said their rig was too small. We're going to go in with a larger rig and we're going to break through. The drilling rigs are like the missionaries. They say we see the need and we're not just praying. Of course we are, but we're not just praying. We're not just giving money. We're going to be going. And so as they go down there and they begin to make a difference, the second company, the second rig company, they were able to drill a four-inch shaft all the way down to where the men were. And as soon as that shaft pierced through, this was like two weeks into this tra traumatic moment. As that, as that shaft pierced through, they were able to drop a camera down and actually see the faces of their loved ones. Can you imagine you've been praying for 15 days and this image comes back up to the surface? They're alive. 
and we can't get them out because the shaft is only about four inches big, uh, four inches wide, like, like a drain pipe at your house. That's the only size they could get through. A third drilling rig company shows up and they drill a shaft as big, and, uh, big enough to put like a barrel through. And they made a, uh, um, uh, a small cable kind of uh, elevator to hoist these guys out. 69 days goes by, 69 days of prayer, and every one of those 33 men were brought out of the, literally the depth of the earth, and they were saved. 33 men. We just watched a video about 3 billion souls. How much did we do? How, how intensely did we respond? to the needs of 33 men that were going to die a natural death within the matter of 30 or 40 years. When I look at the reality of the unreached and I think about eternity, I ask the Lord, Lord, burn it in my heart. Stamp it across my eyes that I'm not here for myself. I am not here for myself. By myself, I'm a broken, sinful man. But with you, Jesus, I'm set free. And not only set free to live a wonderful life now, set free to live with you forever. God, give me your heart as a missionary. Jesus came to this earth to break the bondage of sin. He has given us this message. We have been given the opportunity to bring redemption to lost souls. So is missions our priority? Absolutely. Let me conclude with this story. The story of the unreached people. You guys have all heard my story when I came before. We go into these tribes that are deep in these remote areas. We find people that are completely cut off from the gospel. We found tribes where you know, children were teething on empty bullet shells because war and disease absolutely destroyed their community. And we brought the gospel to them. And as the gospel entered into their world, they were taken from truly Stone Age people into a modern world. And not just with clean water, not just with food. They don't just have education. They've got Jesus and their entire world has been revolutionized. We have a school full of these kids. They previously had never held a pen or pencil in their hand. They previously had never had a written language. They only had a verbal language. As we began to love them, and communicate with them and show them who Jesus is tangibly, we also began to educate their minds and tell them that they're valuable to God. Today, our kids from these Stone Age tribes are scoring higher in their education than anybody in the entire state where they live in South Sudan. And the education director, the government official, he says, how is this possible that your primitive people are, are like this? And I said, we love them. We love them. We spend time with them. We go to them. We show them who God is. And then we show them that God loves them. And we watch their entire worlds be revolutionized. Let me just share with you one story to, in a sense, bring all of this to a beautiful conclusion. I want you to meet my friend Natuk. Natuk is a young girl. This picture was taken when she was 13. 
one day when I was at the school with all the African missionaries and I said to um, uh, the director, Pastor James, I said, James, I just noticed that Natuk was, she was doing fine. And then she noticed that a man had come into the school uh, community, come into the school area, and she ran and hid in the other room. And he said, Rob, that's Natuk's dad. Every time he shows up, he's got something up his sleeve and he's got something that he's gonna do and it's never good. So Natuk knows that when she sees her dad, she runs. And so she literally is hiding in the classroom. So we asked Natuk's dad, why are you here? And he says, well, deep in the village where Natuk's mother and I live, uh, her mother fell into the fire. They, they cooked their food over an open fire like a campfire. She fell into the fire and she burned herself. So Natuk needs to leave the school and to come back to the village and take care of her mom. And we said, wait, she's a 13-year-old kid. She's in school. You want to leave her here in school? We'll send our African doctor that speaks your language, that understands all of the medical things that are needed. We'll send our doctor to you. And he goes, no, 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 the doctor won't help. We need our daughter. And so we said, after two days of arguing with this guy back and forth, it's a huge story. After two days, we said, what are you really here for? And he said, I have been borrowing money from a man from another tribe. And I've been doing this for years. I owe this man from this other tribe $35. And the only way that I could ever pay him back, because we have no money in our community, is to sell my 13-year-old daughter to this man to become his fifth wife. So we found ourselves in the middle of this unreached land, watching God just bring life to this group of kids. And then we found ourselves standing between these unsaved concepts of selling their children into slavery for the rest of their lives. And we said, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And through God's miraculous uh, timing, he put it together that we could pay the $35 that was owed to the man and uh, tell Natuk, you will never again, you will never again be under your father's threat of being sold because we signed a contract with the government and with the local people that Natuk is set free from these things that night as they were doing devotions. Pastor James, our African leader, he's reading to the kids and they're talking about the Lord. Natuk gets up and she says, I have something to say. Now she's speaking to all of the other Tawu's kids, the forgotten kids. She's speaking to them and she says, we've been learning about this man, Jesus. Today, he worked in my life. Today, I know what it means to be redeemed. My redeemer is alive and he's real. Why do we do missions? Because people are trapped. They're trapped selling their children, doing the most insane things. Why do we not do those things? Because somebody risked their life, entered into our community and reached our ancestors. So now we take that message to the very, very ends of the earth. Let me conclude with one final thought. It's called holding the rope. In missions, about 10% of the people actually go on the mission field long-term while the other 90% stay home. So we use the term holding the rope. When William Carey, one of the most famous missionaries to ever leave the Western world and go into India, when he was leaving, William Carey said to Andrew Fuller, I am gonna lower myself into this deep, dark pit. There was no Christians at all in India at that time. I'm gonna lower myself into that pit, but will you stand on this side and hold one end of the rope? And Andrew Fuller and about five other men in England said, we will hold this side of the rope, William, while you go down. 
Today, hundreds of millions of people have heard the gospel because one man said, I'll go, and five men said, we'll stay back and we'll hold the rope. So this is the challenge that we have today. What part will we play? As God is calling us into these areas, what part will we play? You see, it's a partnership. It's not just me. It's all of us doing this together across the street and across the globe. As we leave service today outside, there is a table with the rave ministry. These are rave moms and rave dads that would love to talk to you. Go out there and meet with them. Be encouraged by them. Join their ministry. Reach out to your community or take their same spiritual fervor and start another ministry where there isn't one now. Also, if you want to become a missionary, we have a mission sending agency outside called Saving Grace World Missions. I helped found it many years ago. They want to get you overseas permanently in a healthy, sustainable way so that you can finish the calling that God has put on your life. Come outside and meet us at the Saving Grace World Missions table. And then finally, if you want to sponsor a child like Natuk, if you say, maybe I'll take a short-term trip, maybe I'll be praying and sponsoring, but I want to have one of those unreached kids on my refrigerator, and for $15 a month, I want to give 50 cents a day and change a child's life for eternity. The question that we have to ask ourselves is what part will we play? William Carey said, I attempt great I'm sorry, I expect God to do great things. Therefore, I attempt great things for God. All of your callings are different. All of your places in life right now are unique, but we all share one passion, to take the love that has changed us and to give it to those that are cut off across the street or across the globe. Let's pray. Lord, we ask, Lord, that you will do such a deepening in our heart this morning, that you will take us past those hurdles, those roadblocks, those things that hinder us from truly, truly living for eternity. Jesus, we thank you for your perfect example. Jesus, we know that you have brought us to this point this morning so that we can begin to live for eternity with all that's in us. Lord, take us to the next step in missions. Take our church family to the next step in missions. Jesus, we desire for you to be glorified. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray, amen. Mm -hmm.